Welcome to another edition of Insurance Insights, which is Browse McDowell's podcast series on all things insurance. I am Jody Spencer Johnson. I'm one of the insurance coverage attorneys here at Browse, sitting in the Cleveland office. And I am here today with Elizabeth Hankey. She's vice president at KCIC, which is a consulting firm specializing in products, liability, and related insurance coverage support. Elizabeth and I have come together to put together for you a series of podcasts discussing the next asbestos, which is asbestos. Uh, During the last episode, we provided an overview of um, KCIC's most recent claims trend report, which is now available on KCIC's website. And we identified some of the trends that we were gonna discuss in further detail along with the insurance coverage implications they have. And today we are going to dive in the first of those trends, which is how the look of defendants have changed. So I'm gonna let Elizabeth take over right now to go over uh, the changing look of defendants. Thank you, Jody. Um, as we discussed last time, there's still some top defendants that uh, appear over and over on a lot of complaints. And in fact, there are eight defendants that are named on more than 50% of the 2018 complaints. But we're also seeing increasingly more atypical firms named on complaints. So these could be businesses who only used asbestos-containing component or only a handful of their products and only for a few years had some asbestos in it. Smaller companies that we sometimes call, you know, the mom and pop types not your typical larger manufacturing defendants. Um, and as we sort of dove in a little, dive in a little bit to these different complaints, um, one of the, the things, we have two things that we think are um, behind that. The biggest one is probably the fact that, you know, more than 100 companies have filed bankruptcy directly related to asbestos liability. And there's more expected and certainly more have even happened since our um, report was put out this year which means there are less companies around to sue because those companies now have asbestos bankruptcy trusts. The defendants can't be sued for their asbestos product. And then the other part of that is the very aggressive plaintiff's bar. We, we mentioned this in our last podcast as well. They're highly organized and very motivated to keep the litigation alive. So despite the fact that so many companies have filed for bankruptcy and there's fewer, we're still seeing an average of 64 defendants named on every complaint, so they're finding other people to sue for these same claims. Well, and there are two um, main topics uh, as, as this relates to insurance coverage. One is focusing on the bankruptcy um, aspect of this. One of the ramifications due to the large number of bankruptcies um, is a renewed focus on the smaller we call them the mom and pop shops who are left searching for insurance coverage. The bankruptcy process itself also impacts coverage as the evidence of exposure to products disappears and effectively increases portions that are allocated to solvent defendants. Touching on bankruptcy first, bankruptcy by itself does not terminate an insurer's obligations 
to a policyholder under the policy, but it can affect the insurer's rights and positions. And I'm just going to highlight a few of those. One, Chapter 11 plans of reorganization often include provisions that impair the insurer's contractual rights and relieve a debtor from its obligations. So insurers may find themselves in a position of having to continue to indemnify a debtor while losing the ability to enforce the debtor's obligations. Another one, substantive consolidation. If several related companies file a joint bankruptcy, their assets and liabilities may be aggregated and the insurer may end up um, satisfying claims against a debtor that wasn't a named insured. Acceleration, a Chapter 11 plan can authorize an acceleration of an insurer's indemnification obligations. Self-insured retentions is another area. There, there's case law that holds that insurers could not avoid their coverage obligations based on failure of a bankrupt policyholder to satisfy the SIR. Finally, insurers um, may face standing issues uh, in their attempt to object to a debtor's plan of reorganization, but generally courts have allowed insurers standing where they adversely impact their rights. There's also the, the broad impact of Chapter 11 trusts on the defensive claims of non-bankrupt defendants. There's, as Elizabeth mentioned, there's uh, more, more defendants in that have bankruptcy trusts right now, and that number is growing. And a lot of them contain a confidentiality provision which can impair the defensive claims against solvent defendants. And you end up with a disadvantage if plaintiffs are hiding you know, their exposure information until they get a recovery. And an example of that is in the Garlock ceiling technology case that's been widely publicized. But the second issue that I wanna to touch on uh, quickly that kind of arises out of this new focus on you know, not the big players, but rather the mom and pop shops is corporate succession or the transfer of insurance rights or proving your entitlement to coverage under the policy. Typically, a, a defendant may be targeted uh, for historical liabilities that go way back. They may have purchased a, a, a business and divested it even. Um, and so they're searching for coverage under those old policies. And the transfer of insurance rates has been a hot topic for a while now, and the circumstances under which insurance rates may transfer depend on the nature of the corporate transaction as well as the jurisdiction. This is a meaty topic, um, but just for today, for purposes of this podcast, I just want to highlight a few key points. First, the simple sale of stock and a merger or name change, those do not change, uh, result in a change in ownership. Those, those do not impair your rights under an insurance policy. In a merger, the surviving corporation acquires all rights of the constituent corporation, so there is no issue there. It's really in an asset deal where assets and liabilities can get divvied up that businesses find themselves in a little bit of trouble because it's possible that along the way, the liability and the policies have gotten split apart. It's also further complicated because asset deals are very different. Some of them may expressly deal with insurance rights and some may not. Finally, it's complicated because even if the insurance rights were expressly assigned, some jurisdictions may prohibit the assignment from happening based on an anti-assignment clause in the insurance policy. 
Now, most historical insurance policies contain an anti-assignment clause, which basically says you can't assign your insurance rights under this policy without our consent. And nobody really gets the consent of the insurer to do that. <laughs> this clause was historically interpreted narrowly and was rarely applicable to assignments that occurred after a loss. But several key decisions made the anti-assignment clause a major focus in insurance coverage litigation over legacy liabilities. Just to give you a brief synopsis, before 2003, the anti-assignment clause was almost uniformly interpreted only to prevent the insured from transferring its policy rights to a third party prior to a date of loss. After 2003, several state court decisions were issued that agree that coverage rights do not follow liability as a matter of law where the liability was assumed by contract but they differ as to when a quote-unquote chosen action arises such that it can be transferred despite an anti-assignment clause. For example, here in Ohio, a quote-unquote chosen action occurs when the loss occurs. That's the Pilkington case. In Indiana, by contrast, a chosen action occurs when the loss is quote, identifiable with some precision. At a minimum, the loss has to be reported. And until 2015, in California, a chosen action occurred when the loss was reduced to a sum of money, and that's the Henkel case. Under this ruling, insurance rights were rarely, rarely transferred. And there are other state court decisions, for example, in Hawaii um, and Oregon, where no post-loss assignment of claims without consent were permitted. Now I will say Hankel has been overruled in 2015 pursuant to a um, California statute that the court found impacted the ruling. So really going forward, the question is going to be whether other states who have fallen in line with Hankel will consider the new decision and change their, um, change their jurisprudence as well. But overall, with the variety of the transaction agreements and the variance among jurisdictions, I think we are going to continue to see insurers press the issue of uh, rights to coverage and making sure that policyholders are proving that they are entitled to the coverage they're seeking. So this kind of wraps up the first trend that we're going to talk about. And next time, we're going to move on to the changing look of the plaintiffs. So on behalf of uh, Elizabeth and myself, we thank you for listening in today. Um, if you have any questions, you can certainly reach us. Um, I'm at jjohnson at browse.com. Elizabeth, what's your email? It's Hanky, H-A-N-K-E, and another E for Elizabeth at kcic.com. Perfect. Thanks, everyone.